We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio this evening by regular ICRT commentators, Brian Hugh. Thanks for having me. And Ross Feingold. Good evening. Tonight we'll be discussing a failed bid to attend Interpol's General Assembly, a rejection by the Vatican for the Pope to visit Taiwan, concern over China's blocking a World Health Organization Ebola donation, a major flip-flop on the Shenhao power plant project, and a PRC flag on Jade Mountain. But we'll begin with the latest election news. And for a change, we'll begin in Kaohsiung, where a dispute over the falsifying of information and the shutting down of a Facebook fan page has led to rather iry feelings being raised there. Now, the DPP says it's considering bringing charges against KMT mayoral candidate Han Guo-yu, saying that he knowingly allowed information to be released on his Facebook fan page, alleging that former Kaohsiung mayor Chen Ju and current mayoral candidate Chen Chi Mai were involved in the bid-rigging for some 30 billion NT of city construction projects. Now, Han Guoyu's Facebook page was shut down shortly after the posts appeared and when asked by the press to explain the situation, well, he hinted that the Facebook page had been removed by the DPP government. However, his campaign office issued another statement very shortly after that, this time through the office of KMT Chairman Udoni, that's the Kaohsiung branch of the KMT Chairman's office, in which he admitted to shutting down the Facebook page himself. But not Udini, but the KMT shut down the Facebook page and basically Han should have known about that. Han may have wormed his way out of that, but he's still behind Chen Chi Mai in the polls. But a good sign for Han might be the fact that there are reports that he's attracting more young voters now to his cause and the mayoral race might be closer than we think. Meanwhile, in Taichung, DPP mayoral candidate and incumbent Lin Jia Long has had a book published about him called Lin Jia Long, Away from the Lens, which apparently seeks to show him in a different light from his political one. Bow, it might have been a hit with his supporters, but a comment by the mayor, well, that raised the iry feelings in Beijing, and a very angry Taiwan Affairs Office spokesman said some rather nasty things about the mayor. And in Taipei, a dispute over televised mayoral debates has led to further divisions among the candidates. That after incumbent mayor Ke Wenzhe refused to accept an invitation to join KMT candidate Ding Zhong and DP candidate Pasu Yao at an event organised by university student associations. And there's also a bit of an issue in Taipei concerning campaign events themselves, as the city government reportedly refused to issue a permit for Pasu Yao's campaign to hold events at a city park in Da'an district, saying that campaign activities should not be held in public parks prior to the election. And on a local scale, or rather on a national scale, well, the New Power Party published a list of candidates this week running in the November 24th ballot who are or have been involved in criminal cases. Now, according to the NPP, most of the candidates on the list are running for office in Pingdong County, where 18 of the would-be elected officials have been involved in criminal cases. The list includes 17 such candidates in Kaohsiung, 14 in Taoyuan and 13 in New Taipei. Now, the candidates named in the list are facing or have faced a wide range of criminal charges, including corruption, election fraud, drunk driving, influence peddling and 
and extortion. However, one candidate running in November's ballot has faced murder charges, while another, well, he's faced attempted murder charges. And the NPP is now calling on the government and the Central Election Commission to disclose any information about candidates who have criminal records, as well as those who have been involved in criminal cases. So, Brian, a rather busy week at the in the elections, we've got no polls to digest per se, but still a busy week. Where do we begin? Let's begin in Kaohsiung. Yeah, I think in Kaohsiung, I think part of the issue is Chen Chi Mai seems somewhat colourless, uh, except for having Chen Chu's endorsement. Um, Huang Guoyu is someone known for his connection to agricultural associations. He previously tried to be the mayoral candidate for the KMT in Taipei, and now he's running in Kaohsiung, which seems like a big, big switch, but I think that he can rely on uh, uh, the KMT networks down there. Um, at the same time, what we'll I have to say, I think uh, it's a question how a KMT candidate will do in southern Taiwan when Chen Zhu was just mayor, and, and she was extremely popular as mayor, and so it's a question if the KMT can really flip Kaohsiung. One thing all of these events show is that uh, despite concerns about fake news and misinformation campaigns, which all sides seem to hurl <laughs> at the other, there's also simultaneously seems to be a high degree of transparency. There, no, nothing is kept secret for very long. Allegations of malfeasance by one's opponents immediately get aired in the public space. Uh, there, there is, to be fair, some element or some discussion about policy buried in all of this stuff. <laughs> so if you, if you believe that uh, everything does get aired in the public space, as, as I do, uh, there is an element or part of that is not just I don't like the other person or I don't like the other candidate or the other party. Uh, there, there is an element of uh, their policies are bad as well. So it's good that that gets into the discussion. It would be better if more of this, the discussion was about policy. Uh, I'm going to try and be an optimist here, Gavin. I know that's hard to believe. But I'm, I'm going to say that hopefully as we get into the last few weeks of the election, this atmosphere where pretty much anything can get discussed in the public space will be more about policy, so the issues of concern to the voters as we get closer to the election. And it's not going to be about issues that are important, but somewhat tangential. Wishful thinking from Ross there, Brian? Um, I agree with that. I also think that it'd be good if uh, discussion turns towards policy, because I think that there's a pattern of these revelations being made about um, the past activity of different candidates um, by their political opponents, and that's how this is dug up. Um, I also wish the media would just be more proactive about this and not, um, you know, for example, the MPP has taken to releasing reports on candidates across all of Taiwan that have been guilty of, of uh, criminal activity and so forth, or using government funds to go on vacations and that kind of thing. Um, and it's become a strategy to point to the existing system as corrupt by the uh, MPP. Um, otherwise, you know, you just have the usual DPP slinging mud at the KMT and the KMT slinging mud at the DPP. Um, but yeah, hopefully it can turn towards something more, more concrete. Um, I think, though, unfortunately, just uh, Taiwanese elections sometimes do have this, uh, uh, this atmosphere of being like a soap opera where there's all these last-minute revelations about what this person did in the past and so forth. And so we'll have to see if there's more of that, and I think that probably will happen, too. Like I was talking about slinging mud, Ross. Beijing slung its mud at Lin Jialong in Taichung this week. Well, it, we have to keep in mind that Mayor Lin and the Beijing authorities have uh, a bit of bad feelings going back to the decision to revoke the hosting rights for the Youth Olympic Games, which occurred over the summer. Certainly, uh, it would be an understatement to say there's no love lost between Mayor Lin and the communists in Beijing. Uh, and that'll just continue, certainly, if Mayor Lin is successful 
in his reelection. Uh, he, he's a convenient target for Beijing if they want to name and, and insult uh, senior high-profile DPP leaders. And Maryland's profile will certainly increase should he win re-election. Right, let's pop over to Taipei. Thai let's pop over to Taipei. There we go. Brian, so Kerwinger refusing to join a debate. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that it would be actually smart for Ko if he, you know, electorally speaking, if he just avoided having to debate his opponents. He basically seems like he will win by default at this point. So sometimes avoiding uh, opportunities for engagement might be a good thing because then it removes the possibility that Ko will say something that causes a controversy, which he sometimes does, and that could damage his election chances. Um, at the same time, it is to be hoped, I think, that Ko would have a, a debate with his opponents, although he's doing much better, and I think that he basically will just sweep handily into power. Right, of course, this debate, Ross, was with university student associations, where you thought, well, maybe Kerr would... Does he need the youth vote, or has he already got it? It, it would seem that he's got that vote locked up. It, it, it's also uh, fair to say, as Brian mentioned, that candidates who are ahead in the polls, not just in a democracy, but in, in non-democratic <laughs> countries as well, uh, typically will not debate their opponents when they have such a large lead, because the advantages to, to be gained are, are small, and there's always risk going into a debate that you'll do worse than your opponents. Even if it won't impact the election result, you, you still lose a little, a few points, or your, your image in the, in, in the public, uh, the public's view could, could go down a bit. So there's certainly that risk. Um, we have to keep in mind America, despite being the mayor for nearly four years now, is still not a professional politician. And in his own unique way, he reminds us that almost every day, uh, whereas his opponents have basically spent their entire professional career in politics. So they might be better at debating than America. So that's one more reason America would want to avoid that. Uh, to look at it from one other perspective, though, if he does have presidential aspirations, which many people speculate that he does, and I'll have to make a decision in the first half of 2019 if he's going to pursue that. Uh, It it would be good if he did join this debate, because it would just give him another platform, because such a debate would get national media coverage, not just here in Taipei, uh, and it would give him another platform to to show his talents to the voters throughout Taiwan. And of course, the park issue government says city government says they can't use public parks for election campaigns well uh we'll have to give the city government of taipei the benefit of the doubt and say that they're completely neutral and there is no consideration of ensuring that dpp or kmt candidates do not use uh public parks This, this is a a tough debate in Taiwan's democracy. You know, sometimes I, I say that the democracy pendulum has swung so far uh, that it gets interpreted in interesting ways. So in a in a mature and healthy democracy, any side should be able to apply to use uh, any political uh, side of a political debate, political party, issue groups, NGOs, etc., should be able to apply to use public spaces. And there should be very transparent rules for such things that are applied fairly to all applicants regardless of what issue the applicants are proposing or supporting and regardless of whether or not the city authorities or the elected officials come from the same or a different side of the entity seeking to lease or rent a public space to hold a rally or some kind of parade, etc. So it's probably better if this uh, was was a non-issue and people didn't get worked up about it and it was a a very normal thing to do. We are having a a big protest uh, 
uh, parade here in Taipei tomorrow, uh, which is uh, uh, has a very clear political position on Taiwan status, and they, they obtain the necessary permits. So uh, it, it shouldn't be something that people get excited about. It doesn't really benefit politicians, elected politicians, if the governments, the, the local governments they oversee, uh, are perceived as denying permits to the other side of a political debate. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, I think that it is a little bit surprising to me, particularly because there are cases of political parties using public space, um, even just in recent memory during 2016 elections, for example. Um, and so it is a little surprising. Um, it'll be it'll, it'll be seen if eventually Yao is allowed to have rallies. There have been rallies that have taken place, though not in parks. Um, and so I think uh, it, it just depends. It, it, uh, Ko does need to be to avoid the accusation that he is using the mechanisms of the city to block opponents, but at the same time, this might just not be enough of an issue. I think some of the public is uh, actually quite happy not to have these big rallies or uh, these uh, trucks that go around with loudspeakers um, blaring campaign slogans. Well, in the internet era, maybe we could just do away with these event public events <laughs> in the parks and just do everything online. Look, some, some of Taiwan's candidates, because Taiwan is, is a, such a, a, a you know, the internet literacy in Taiwan is so extraordinary. Some candidates are much better Mm. using social media than others. Mm. Um, and Merrick has had some success with his, his online presence, definitely. whether yeah, YouTube videos has. or Facebook. So maybe Merrick is sitting in his office thinking, like, I don't know why these other, these other <laughs> opponents of mine can't figure this out. <laughs> right. And Brian, the NPP calling for a list of candidates to be released by the government and the Central Election Commission that have been involved in criminal cases. Do you mm. see this happening? Considering the government, uh, has, the government of course has a few candidates there, doesn't it, on the list? That's right, it does. Um, and the Central Election Commission, it's a, it's a question: should the onus fall on them then to dig up all these different things? Um, you know, uh, the government is required to provide information on candidates to all members of the public. Um, however, I think that it would, it probably is unlikely then that the the Central Election Commission would actually compile, let's say, a dossier on the past misdeeds of candidates, because then that really opens the C, uh, Central Election Commission opens the accusation that it is favoring some candidates and not others. Seems like a political liability, particularly for the Tsai administration. Uh, maybe going back to what we were saying with Ko about the Taipei City go- government and whether he would use that for his campaign, the Tsai administration, of course, needs to avoid the accusation that it's using the government as a way to get its means or uh, to to benefit its its uh, members of its own party. We've seen a number of situations where political parties failed, in my opinion, to do proper due diligence on their party officials or Mm -hmm. candidates, and then it comes out later. Because, Mm -hmm. as we were talking about earlier in the program, everything always comes out. (laughs) Taiwan is not very good at keeping secrets. So uh, if a political candidate thinks they could keep it a secret that they have a political – sorry, a criminal record uh, or have even been accused of a crime but were not – not convicted, or even involved in some kind of civil litigation, a commercial dispute, it's very unlikely that these things could be kept secret. And we saw that, for example, with the cabinet, new cabinet spokeswoman uh, who, who had a driving under the influence mm. conviction, which apparently uh, when she um, was invited to run uh, or be on the party list for the legislative UN, uh, the party headquarters didn't ask her. And then when she became part, uh, sorry, executive UN spokeswoman, party didn't ask her. There, there was no due diligence question. Do you have a criminal record? Or is there anything we should know about? Uh, so, well, why 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 don't parties ask this? If parties ask this, um, they could or cannot have a zero tolerance policy. Uh, that that's a different issue. But parties should at least be asking this. And there's no reason to keep this information secret from the public and then let the public decide. Some some people might be convicted of uh, uh, something so minor, like you know, littering or something, that it wouldn't matter to the public. Uh, <laughs> but if someone's been convicted of uh, driving under the influence, I, I don't think it's appropriate for parties to withhold this information or to not even ask. 
I think that sometimes the, the parties just expect candidates to say it themselves if they have a criminal record and, and to sort of fall on their own sword, which I think candidates sometimes are quite unlikely to do. Um, and so it ends up just being citizens or the media or PTT digs it up. But if that's the view, we're, we're, we would be saying it's okay, it's acceptable <laughs> for party headquarters or party leadership, and, and current leadership being Wu Dani and, and President Tsai, uh, since she's the chairwoman of the party, to, to, to have an ignorance is bliss attitude. Well, I didn't know that candidate mm-hmm. Gavin Phipps has a criminal record. <laughs> I never asked him. I, I don't think that my own view is I, I don't mm-hmm. think that's acceptable yeah, is, for political quite, so. parties so to take too. that view. It's just kind of surprising, yeah. And I don't have a criminal record, just in case anyone thinks I do. And we'll move on before this conversation goes further. (laughs) Now, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs is voicing its regret over Interpol's refusal to accept a request to allow Taiwan to attend its General Assembly as an observer next month in Dubai. Now, Ministry spokesman Andrew Lee says that his office has received a reply from Interpol's General Secretariat in which it simply refused to invite Taiwan to the event, citing a 1984 resolution which recognises China as the sole Chinese representative to Interpol. Now, according to Lee, the Foreign Office is expressing its strong dissatisfaction and regret about the decision, saying that the the refusal to allow Taiwan to attend runs counter to the group's stated goal of building a more secure world through global police cooperation. So, Brian, did this come as a surprise? Of course, the government made a great hoo-ha about we've applied to go to Interpol, whoopee-doo. <laughs> I think, uh, yeah, the government just wants Taiwan to participate in international organization. This is no exception, uh, except particularly Interpol has been in the news recently because the former head, who is Chinese, was arrested by China and now has resigned as the head of Interpol. I think uh, the Taiwanese government saw perhaps a space there because uh, there had been such an event which reflected negatively on China. Perhaps there was a space there for Taiwan to try to fit its way in. And unfortunately, that was not the case, and that's not surprising at all, given that the majority of international organizations do not admit Taiwan. Um, and so that hasn't changed, and that's not surprising. But I think it was just an attempt to uh, put Taiwan on the map in that sense, in, in just having an event. Uh, Taiwan being blocked from international organizations sometimes still raises Taiwan's profile. Everything in this conversation seems identical to other um, mm. more prominent <laughs> international organizations. So you could have swapped out Interpol for the International Civil, Civil Aviation Organization, World Health Assembly, um, where the, the application process or the request to attend as an observer was similar. The uh, hope for greater support from Taiwan's important international friends, other countries, specifically the United States, uh, would be influential. And uh, the rejection and then the Taiwan reaction to the rejection. So it all seems very similar. Uh, I'm not a, a supporter of, of the China angle that Brian referred to in the sense that uh, it's not going to help Taiwan get into Interpol by saying that uh, the former Chinese uh, president of Interpol has been arrested by China. Uh, China's bad. Taiwan is good. That's not the winning angle for Taiwan's participation in this organization because it shouldn't be played like it's a zero-sum game. Uh, And frankly, that approach has never worked for Taiwan in international organizations, at least the existing ones. That might work in... uh, New ones. So, if we're going to create a, a a international organization of police agencies from democratic countries, then obviously you wouldn't <laughs> invite China to, to participate. Probably wouldn't be able to invite a lot of countries in Asia either, though. Frankly, uh, but for the organizations that that countries generally participate in, it's it's the same issues and and uh, whatever is going on in China, China uh, arrests it, dissidents. Uh, on, on false charges uh, or people get away with crimes, what, you know, whatever policing problems or lack of rule of law China has, citing that 
is not going to help Taiwan get into Interpol. I think uh, Taiwan oftentimes cites that uh, the heads of international organizations are Chinese uh, nationals, such as with Interpol or the World Health Assembly and so forth. And so that is the reason why Taiwan is being blocked. But I think this is a case in which now the Chinese head has been removed and you're still being blocked. And so uh, this kind of approach is still stuck in a certain place. It's not going to kind of get anywhere. Right, let's continue in the same vein, where Foreign Minister Joseph Wu this week voiced his concerns about Beijing's attempts to block a proposed one million US dollar donation to the World Health Organization to help fight Ebola. Now, according to Wu, Taiwan is seeking to make the financial contribution in order to help play its part in the global fight against the deadly disease. Nothing wrong with that, it's a pretty nasty disease. However, Wu says that China's moves to block and obstruct any form of participation by Taiwan and the World Health Body are worrying and show that Beijing is failing to put global health concerns before politics. Nothing new there, really. We sort of knew that anyway. Now, the Foreign Office says that it's still in talks with the WHO Secretariat as it seeks to come to an agreement on what name Taiwan could possibly make such a donation in and how the money could be delivered in a big briefcase. That was a joke. Anyway, <laughs> President Tsai Ing-wen, of course, announced this donation to Ebola fighting in May. Um, yeah, very often Taiwan tries to be a good citizen despite its uh, exclusion from international organizations, and that is a strategy to try to win admittance to the international community. Um, even though you're excluded from the WHO, you still try to donate to uh, efforts to fight disease such as Ebola. Um, with the Interpol, despite the fact they're not part of it, you s- do not allow Taiwan to become a haven for crime despite being unacknowledged. You still uh, try to adhere to international standards, and this is another example. And so making donations, prominent donations, and then uh, raising a fuss about these donations being blocked, that is a strategy to, again, uh, appeal for Taiwan in the international community, but it's it's also, it's very petty of, of uh, the World Health Assembly, and it's disappointing, yet it is not surprising, again, just with this modern pattern we've been talking about. But Brian, if it's not surprising, why did Taiwan even bother, uh, since the, the level or lack of mm-hmm. level of interaction with the World Health Organization, it, it's so limited due to China's uh, efforts to ensure that Taiwan cannot interact with the organization. It's not a surprise what this result was. So uh, what has Taiwan gained? Uh, and if Taiwan wants to make this donation, we all know that mm-hmm. there were other channels, mm-hmm. other ways, right? There are NGOs from Taiwan that do wonderful medical assistance programs um, around the world and have experience in Africa. And and the, the government could have simply worked through one of those organizations, could have invited um, medical uh, professionals from the impacted countries to come to Taiwan for ad- advanced training and, and just done it here. And, and uh, they, I'm sure the impacted countries would have been grateful for that kind of training as well. That's something Taiwan has a lot of experience and is very good at as well. So uh, was this just a PR exercise for domestic consumption? Uh, Brian, you mentioned you know, I think, it I think raises, I think raises Taiwan's profile internationally, but, but there's also going to be some negative media mm-hmm. attention as well. You got rejected. And for people who are not so familiar with Taiwan issues, you know, it's not going to be really clear why Taiwan got rejected. You know, the worst case scenario is people think Taiwan got rejected because it's some kind of rogue state. Um, you know, people who, again, people who aren't familiar with, with the issues. So uh, I, I would question the strategy here. I certainly wouldn't question uh, the sincerity of making the donation, but uh, there are other ways to have made this donation. So then, where do we go from here? Do you stop seeking to make the donation? I mean, do, do, do you tell the public here in Taiwan, well, we got rejected, so we won't make the donation? Then I would say, well, then were you sincere about this to begin with? Mm, I think it's a double bind. Um, it is actually useful to 
sometimes try to donate or contribute to international organizations that get rejected because then you can China looks petty through these rejections when it benefits the world for Taiwan to participate. Um, also domestically, though, I think it is a concern of the Tsai administration that um, the Tsai administration does need to make it seem as though it is doing something to increase the international uh, the space in the international community which Taiwan has to uh, navigate. And so, despite the failure, that is still at least a, a sign that is trying rather than it's given up on this uh, efforts entirely. That's been an object of criticism sometimes. Right. Well, there you go. Taiwan can't give away one million US dollars. Maybe I should give them my bank account number. <laughs> anyway, we'll have to take a short break now, but we'll be right back after these important messages. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and the Vatican. Well, the Pope, of course, got an invite. Last week, last weekend, in fact, when Vice President Chen Zhenren had a bit of a chin wag with the pontiff in the Vatican City before a canonization ceremony, and he said, Hey, Pope, buddy, why don't you come and visit Taiwan? And apparently, well, the Vice President said that the Pope responded favorably to the invitation. Unfortunately, the Vatican says that the Pope will not be visiting Taiwan and currently has no plans to do so. That comment actually came the same day that the Vatican and said that it might be willing, apparently, according to South Korea, to visit North Korea. No, no Pope, no surprise. Uh, the, the polite uh, response that the Pope gave to the Vice President's invitation was expected. Of course, the Pope on the spot would have said, uh, oh, how wonderful, and uh, I, I wish the people of Taiwan well. I'll pray for them. That's what the Pope would say to anyone. Uh, you know, Gavin, if you... you you met the Pope and said, why don't you come hang out with me in my, my hometown in England? I'm sure the Pope would have responded the same way. He would have said, I'll pray for them and, oh, thank you for the invitation. Uh, so uh, it, it's no surprise. I think it was reported here in Taiwan with a bit too much over-enthusiasm um, to the point where people, maybe a small number, but there still might have, people, might have been people out of uh, false hope that the Pope would actually visit Taiwan. Uh, so he's not coming here. Uh, I, I question the value of having made this such a public uh, exercise that the Pope was invited. Uh, but we could return the discussion maybe to the other religious leader who has been invited by certain organizations but has not received a visa, and that would be His Holiness the Dalai Lama. Would the Pope need a visa? Uh, no, because uh, there's hmm. probably a visa waiver <laughs> between... <laughs> The, the yeah, Vatican <laughs> and the Republic of China, on a visa given that, yeah, given that they have formal diplomatic relations. Um, yeah, it's not surprising. I think that there is a strategy of uh, inviting high-profile religious leaders or political leaders to Taiwan to except the, except the Dalai Lama, Lama, though. Except the Dalai Lama, because there's a fear of upsetting China. Um, and it's funny because North Korea, which also is trying to better its position in the international community, also invited the Pope, and and it seems like he's more positive on that. Um, obviously, what what uh, Pope Francis is not going to say is that oh well, I'm afraid of upsetting China because we just had this deal with China, which you know we didn't actually de-recognize uh, Taiwan in that sense, but as part of the deal, but still I can't upset China. He wouldn't say that directly, although that's obviously the subtext. But I think the uh, Tsai administration probably is raising this issue and making it seem like an achievement that there's this non-critical response, really, from the Vatican, because uh, the KMT has keep criticizing it for losing diplomatic allies. And the Tsai administration is surprisingly afraid of this accusation that, that it has failed Taiwan diplomatically in the international world. The, the more important question here, I think, is what comes next between mm. the Vatican and, and Taiwan. And because of this agreement that Brian referred to, the likelihood of, of derecognition is, is increasingly high. It's certainly far higher than it's ever been mm. uh, in recent decades, uh, at any time prior to this agreement. And 
what will happen after that? What, what is Taiwan's plan? And it behooves the authorities here to come up with a plan. Uh, will there be a Vatican cultural office in Taipei? Uh, will there be a, a Tecro at the, at the Holy See? We just don't know. And what is the, the reaction or the feelings of Taiwan's Catholic community to these developments? They're also, I would say, surprisingly quiet. If you compare it to the outspokenness of the Catholic community in Hong Kong, mm-hmm. most notably uh, former or retired Cardinal Zen, uh, very outspoken in their opposition to, to the agreement. Um, but we don't see that so much here in Taiwan. Uh, and we'll, it'll be interesting how that develops as as the likelihood of derecognition of Taiwan increases. There was a report this morning quoting a Catholic leader from Hong Kong who said the Pope also has no plans to go to China. Well, no plans until he makes a plan. Uh, but I guess he's the Pope. Yeah, he can do that, can't he? But, but the, the likelihood of, of visiting China is obviously far higher than the likelihood of visiting Taiwan. <laughs> and there does not have to be formal diplomatic relations between uh, the Holy See and China for the Pope to visit China. That's why they're talking about this visit to North Korea. There's no formal diplomatic relations between the Holy See and North Korea, but uh, the Pope might possibly go there, and it'll get a lot of criticism uh, for the same reasons that the agreement between the Vatican and China has gotten criticism. How could the Pope go to to a place uh, that does not have religious freedom and is one of the most uh, totalitarian and awful regimes on the planet? Um, But that's what popes do. I mean, if you look at the, the Cold War era, um, some of the popes did visit uh, countries on the other side of the Iron Curtain, and they're trying to connect with Catholic communities and promote world peace, and that, that's just part of the job. That's right. Um, and so we'll have to see. Arguably, China is one of the largest Christian nations in the world by population, although there's such restrictions on, on the church in China that uh, the government has taken to naming their own religious leaders, much like it does with other religions, such as also Tibetan Buddhism, um, with the naming of lamas by the government. Um, and that will definitely open the, the Pope to criticism, but at the same time, particularly for religious leaders seeking legacies, making inroads into China, uh, into a nation with that many believers, is something that sometimes religious leaders want to achieve. It seems like an accomplishment. I mean, we were talking about the Dalai Lama earlier. I mean, do you think the Dalai Lama could come back? Uh, I'd be surprised if the Dalai Lama uh, did not come back. The, the more important question, though, is the... the same question that comes up wherever the Dalai Lama travels to, which is, does, does the political leadership of the country that he visits uh, meet him when he comes into the country? So the key question here would be if a, a religious organization or a university were to be the host organization, um, that's easy enough. Uh, and maybe not so controversial, but uh, does the political leader meet or not meet? And uh, in the past, so many countries have struggled with this, um, including the United States, because there, there's an angry reaction from China. China will cut off certain kinds of interactions in, in the short term as a response, whether it's uh, trade or security or other kinds of bilateral interactions. Uh, in the new environment where the Trump administration has taken uh, actions to show its displeasure with China's policies across a wide range of issues, uh, have we seen f- foreign leaders, leaders around the world more open to meeting the Dalai Lama? Not yet. Um, should Tsai Ing-wen be bold and, and meet the Dalai Lama? Probably would get an enormous amount of public support here in Taiwan. And it's very surprising that she hasn't, because this seems like a very easy, low-key way to push against China. Um, I think that most people in 
the world would not view this as a bad thing. Uh, Tsai Ing-wen having a meeting with the Dalai Lama, and China reacts strongly and claims provocation and so forth, but it just comes off as ridiculous. And so it is a way to, again, make China look petty again. Yet at the same time, I think uh, the Tsai administration is surprisingly cautious on some of these issues regarding cross-strait relations. And maybe for elections, the, that's part of why. Um, it's before elections been much more quiet on these issues. We'll see if... Um, in the future, she decides that this is a, a form of action she might pursue. But now that the Pope has, or the Vatican has formally said that the Pope will not be coming to Taiwan, it, it really would be a great time to revisit the issue of, <laughs> of the Dalai Lama. So, well, we didn't get the Pope, but we got the Dalai Lama, right? It's kind of like you, know, you, don't right. get, you, don't get, you don't get one big musical act to come, but you get, you get another one to come here. Right? Oh, that's right. <laughs> And we'll jump away from religion there and we'll talk about energy or flip-flopping on energy because we're following up now on a story we touched on last week and the government has now said, in fact it said last Friday after we recorded the show, that it plans to scrap its plans to expand and reopen the Shenhao coal-fired power plant in New Taipei. Now Premier William Lai says the cabinet is now hoping to revoke the environmental impact assessment for the Shenhao power plant before next month's local election. That's well, it's pretty quick. And according to Lai, the Ministry of Economic Affairs and the Ministry of the Environment are handling the revocation of that assessment report. Now, that move comes after lawmakers from across party lines called on the Cabinet to terminate the project by revoking all administrative approvals granted for the power plant since 2006. Now, of course, environmental groups are cheering this move, and the Premier says that the plans to scrap the plant are OK because a planned third liquefied natural gas terminal proposed by C. CPC will ensure stable power supplies. And of course, we talked about that project last week, which has also faced environmental questions. That's right. I think uh, what is interesting, too, is that there's been such pressure on the Thai administration on this plant um, as a nationwide issue. Um, it's been put to referendum, which has been pushed for to a great degree by the KMT, which is not surprising because they have hooked onto this issue as a way to criticize the Thai administration. Yet, I wonder if that is the reason for the flip flop um, fear that a referendum might actually pass against this plant. Um, it's very interesting, this uh, this particular referendum, because this, is, this arguably is not as implicitly a nationwide an issue as the referendums on, let's say, nuclear energy or gay marriage and so forth. Um, yet this is also being put for a referendum. And so a local issue, is, which does affect the surrounding area as well, but has become a national issue. And it would look bad for the Thai administration if then the public as a whole votes against this. And I think this, this flip-flopping is, is it's unexpected. Um, I do not expect this. Well, as as an American, um, <laughs> we should keep in mind Donald Trump's great support for coal, or as he calls it, beautiful coal. Uh, but apparently the authorities here in Taiwan don't think coal is as beautiful as President Trump does. So that'll be a loss of uh, export opportunity for, for American coal if, if Taiwan's not going to be bringing in more coal. Uh, but it seems that political parties try to be on both sides of these issues. So when you're out of power, you'll 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 object to whatever projects the people in power are bringing forward, no matter what type of energy it is, uh, whether it's gas or coal or, or renewable. Uh, but we know that the DPP has, has a very clear policy on nuclear. If President Tsai is reelected in 2020, she's going to have to revisit that, uh, the goal of achieving a nuclear-free homeland by 2025 is is a nice aspiration, but uh, may not be likely. Um, but you don't want coal, then you're relying on natural gas and renewables, such as offshore wind, onshore wind, and solar. Uh, but we all know that the renewables cannot make up 
uh, what you would lose from nuclear coal. Um, so uh, we, we still have a public and also a business in, uh, business community expectation for greater clarity on the future of, of energy policy. And making this decision now so shortly before the election, it really just comes across as something to get votes, not, not really as an energy policy. So you don't agree with Brian that maybe the government did it to head off the referendum? Uh, clearly, the government did it to uh, bolster the chances of its DPP candidate in mm. New well, Taipei. Well, related, I think, because um, the referendum and election take place at the same time. Um, yet, I think uh, it is quite interesting because the KMT has decided to push for nuclear energy, despite the fact that this is a controversial issue, which one which is actually uh, much more easily able to galvanize the public than, than other issues. For example, protests around air pollution, that's... Uh, that's occurred in the past few years, but that is, is it doesn't have as much history as, for example, protests against nuclear energy. Um, so the KMT decided to take that risk and, and support nuclear energy. Um, and so there's that, but that, that issue is also unclear for the, the time administration. What is its stance on nuclear energy currently? Um, it did allow for restarts. It still has this this aspiration towards a nuclear-free homeland, which probably is not really going to be achieved. Um, and so this is this is like a temporary um, act in terms of the the time administration's waffling and lack of clarity on energy policy. It's backed away from coal for now, but again, yes, what is it going to do in the long term for Taiwan's energy needs? And obviously, if they scrap the plant, they, they, they've okayed the Shen Ao referendum, of course, Ross. So, I mean, mm, will, yeah, they be, right. will, they be, will they be printing the ballots or will they completely take it off the ballots? Or will it have just have to be printed in a big black line across it? It's an excellent question, and it'll just put extreme extreme pressure on the Central Election Commission, which is already struggling um, to deal with the many referendums mm. and how to manage the logistics of the referendum combined with the uh, local offices that are being elected that day. And it also leads to confusion, and it, it also leads us back to an issue we've discussed on previous programs, which is the government, and to a lesser extent the KMT, taking a public position uh, or their failure to take public positions on all the referenda questions. Right, and before we go this evening, there was a bit of an incident this week when a pro-unification local government election candidate photographed himself standing atop Jade Mountain with his two children waving the Chinese national flag. He was also singing the Chinese national anthem, but of course it was a photo and we couldn't hear that at all because it was a photo. And he climbed up Jade Mountain to do this and he basically said, this is what I want to do, I'm pro-unification, I don't care what anybody says, I'm going to stand here and say that, well, Taiwan is part of China and they should be one. That's led to a rather angry backlash and apparently the government now is seeking to ban all political events, political rallies, political flags, political ideologies, political paraphernalia, political banners or political signs from appearing anywhere in the island's national parks. This could be problematic, not just on, on basic free speech concerns, but uh, it's very common when people uh, reach the top of the peak, they unfurl a flag. It could be the flag of their country. Uh, so certainly local people that climb up a high peak like like um, Yushan or, or other mountains in Taiwan, and uh, to show how proud they are of their achievement, they'll unfurl a flag and take a lot of flo- photos. And the same thing w- would be with foreigners who do that as well. So it wouldn't be surprising to have an American go on top of a mountain, whether here in Taiwan or somewhere else, and they get to the top and they, they show their flag. Uh, just, just a few days ago, there was a, a group of South Korean trekkers in, in the 
the Himalayas, who unfortunately uh, died in an accident. But I'm sure if they had reached the peak, they would have shown the South Korean flag. So uh, it's pretty normal activity. Uh, there's also concerns about, say, youth groups, the Boy Scouts, the Girl Scouts. You're going to ban their flags, too, uh, the you know, organizations that have events in national parks. Uh, so it's, it's, it's kind of hard to define what you're going to ban and not ban. And uh, it could also be a bit of an overreaction. The person who did this has almost no following in Taiwan. He, he's just an oddity for having done that. He's not going to get more people to support unification by having gone up the mountain and, and brought his kids as well. Uh, you know, Taiwan is a democracy, and uh, people have a right to free speech, and they even have a right to assembly. So if he wants to go up a mountain and unfurl a PRC flag, it's, as I said, it's odd. But I, I hope we don't overreact. Because, of course, Brian, this means that you couldn't actually climb, if this law passes mm. and they amend the National Park Act, you couldn't actually climb Jade Mountain and wave the DPP flag. That's correct. Um, and it does raise a lot of free speech issues. It, it goes back to the one of the central issues in Taiwan is that there's a political camp which hopes for the unification of Taiwan with another country. But then what then about their free speech uh, rights? And, for example, what about a Chinese tourist that decides to climb this mountain and, as, as Ross mentioned, just wants to unfurl a Chinese flag? That might not even, even mean that they're pro-unification or anything like that. They might just be proud of their achievement. And so that, that raises issues. Um, and I think uh, it's actually an issue that DPP politicians sometimes seeking to score points easily with the pan-green camp or the deep blue, uh, deep greens, let's say, um, such as Pasue Yao, have, have proposed banning Chinese flags after controversy regarding um, actions from the Chinese Unification Promotion Party, um, uh, the White Wolf, White Wolf Zhang Anlo, um, the Chinese Concentric Patriotism Association, and other groups that have resorted to violence. Um, but that does that raise questions regarding free speech in Taiwan and limitations and so forth. Because, of course, most people that do this, as it unfurl the national flag of China, I think most of the general public looks at them like they're completely bonkers, Ross. Yeah, again, it, there's not much support for... The PRC here in Taiwan, uh, very small, the groups that Brian just mentioned, uh, someone who shows their flag, the PRC flag, whether it's outside Taipei 101 or in a national park, uh, they're, they're not going to persuade more people to be supportive of the government in Beijing just by doing that. Uh, but the, it is an option to just ban PRC flags and symbols and, and not other countries. So. Uh, we won't we won't prohibit an American who hikes up a mountain and, and wants to show a U.S. flag, uh, but we will ban the PRC flag because it, it is a country with uh, you know, intentions that are are bad towards Taiwan. They've threatened to take military action towards Taiwan, so you could try to justify it on that basis and, and say this is why we're not banning all foreign flags or all political symbols, but we are going to ban the PRC. The public might be supportive of that, but that requires some political will then, not not just Pesuayao to say, because mm-hmm. he's, he's, he's but one legislator right now or, and a candidate for mayor, but it really would have to be for the government to propose, to write and propose such a law and, and give a justification. And I think if they articulated it well, you know, they can make comparisons and you know, find other countries that have taken analogous actions like China and the ROC flag. Yeah, that, that, that would be one. Um, but, but you could even look at, uh, at Europe, which has banned um, uh, symbols of, of the uh, fascist parties, for example. 
um, and, and try and make an analogy. It's not a great analogy, uh, but but you could say that there are certain situations that actually require the banning of the use of certain symbols um, in the public space. It does go against uh, what we typically perceive as, as Taiwan's support for free speech. Mm-hmm. Again, you, you would just have to ar- articulate why why you're doing it. But I, I would I, I would strongly suggest that if that's the direction, then it'd be narrow in scope to the PRC rather than what we've seen in the last few days as a result of what this person did, uh, which is uh, all political symbolism. We'll ban that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, yeah. KMT politicians seem especially fi- f- fond of uh, climbing mountains and waving the ROC flag. It seems to be like a recurring trope of uh, KMT party chairs, actually. Um, yeah, but I think it raises issues because Taiwan, sometimes it looks better to be more free and freedom of expression from China, even if that allows for Chinese symbols. Um, hey, can I have a referendum on it, Brian? They can have a check idea. another that's one. They, they've, got to take the, <laughs> they've got to take the Shenau one off the list. They can chuck that one on there. How about that? Uh-huh. That'd be a great idea. <laughs> anyway, with that great idea, we'll leave it here on Taiwan This Week This Week. And I've been joined in the studio this evening by Brian Hugh. Good night. And Ross Feingold. Have a good weekend. Thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcasts on iTunes and Android podcast apps where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 8 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.